So, so yeah, we're doing Samuel, Samuel uh, uh, 1, and um, we're carrying on our thinking in terms of looking at 1 Samuel, looking at how, what they can teach us about our identity. Who do we think we are? Or who do you think you are? When I was thinking about this and when I was uh, trying to think through um, a way to introduce this uh, talk, sometimes things just come at you from different angles. And this particular introduction came at a, an angle which I didn't expect. Um, Loose Women was on TV at our house. Right. And I was just, it was just on. And something, one of the presenters said, while I was just doing my thing, and Loose Women was on in the background, something one of the presenters said just kind of stopped me in my tracks a bit and was like, just made me listen and pay attention. So, paraphrasing a little bit. She said, I'm not religious. So just to give a bit of context, sorry, she, she's talk, it's just after Easter. So it had a bit of a, is faith still relevant section, I think. She said, I'm not religious, but I was, she was listening to someone doing a radio interview. It was a lady doing a radio interview, and um, she said she had a special relationship with God because it made her feel like she was loved, like she was worthy. She wait, went on to say it made her think about all the conversations that they on the show have been having regarding young women in particular said sometimes having low self-esteem, low self-worth, thinking about what others are thinking about them, judging themselves by other people. Whether or not having the knowledge that you are worthy, that you are worthy of love, albeit from a God, really does make a difference to know how you approach life. I thought, well, that's... What an interesting statement just to say at 10 o'clock on a what, Tuesday morning or something. Another person on the panel, Katie Piper, I don't know if you know that person, but she was, um, she was an ex-model, and in, in 2008, in March, she got just a, a horrific incident where her ex-boyfriend threw acid in her face, causing major damage to her face and blindness in one eye. She, she wholeheartedly agreed to this when she was talking and she said yet the fact that you are loved by your creator and God loves you gives her confidence comfort and worth here's a question today for all of us what do you find your identity in who are you where do you find your worth do you feel worthy of love before Easter, like I said before, we've been going through Samuel 1, and we've been asking these questions, who do we think we are? Samuel 1 is a book full of messed up people. It's not a book where we see um, people getting it right the majority of the time. But that's why it's perfect for this. That's why it's perfect for us. We also see within it, that although there's messed up situations, God still works. It's not like there's a messed up situation and then God descends and departs and we'll look into that. But God is still working, even though it looks chaotic and messy and disastrous. So, just a quick recap. Um, just to bring you up to speed. 1 Samuel is describing a point in history regarding Israel. It's probably about 10,000 BC. 
at this moment in time, Israel are a group of um, tribes, really, 12 tribes, and they're on their journey to transition in to become a monarchy with a king. Within the story, the writer leaves us and weaves in effective character studies. Really effective character studies. So, um, right at the beginning, if you can remember, we met Hannah, who couldn't uh, have children, but then she gave birth to Samuel. We met Eli. We're going to talk a little bit more about Eli. We met Eli and his sons. Eli is a priest, and as we've read, Eli has been in charge, been the spiritual leader of Israel for 40 years. Him and his sons, well, let's say, his sons in the Bible and in the passages that, we've, uh, that, we've read, uh, that have come before this, do not care about God, do not care about his people. What's been happening is that it, uh, Eli has made his sons priests in the temple, and then they've been using the temple as a brothel, so they've been sleeping with other people within the, in the temple, as well as that, the sacrifices that people have been bringing to God, Eli's sons and Eli have been taking those sacrifices and eating them for themselves. So safe to say, when I said at the start this was a messed up situation, you can see how messy it is. Eli, a priest for 40 years, has wandered off maybe, put his sons above God, and then chaos ensues. Eli is then told by a prophet in no uncertain terms in chapter 2 how this was going to end. Because, as I've just said, in terms of using the temple as a brothel and, and all the rest of it, God was not happy with that. So a prophet says to him, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Okay, so Eli's met with that news. Then we meet Samuel, who at this time is quietly serving God and listening to him. The week just before uh, we had the Easter hol uh, holiday, the, uh, the Israel army, led by Eli's sons, have gone into battle. What they did, they used the Ark of God as a kind of lucky charm. And I think Joe mentioned it as a kind of rabbit foot theory in terms of we've got, we've got the Ark of God. That means that we're going to uh, survive and, and we're going to win this, uh, win this battle. The Ark of God symbolized the presence of God with his people. So the Ark of God was really, really, really valuable, really special. They had to defend it at all costs. It didn't work out for them. 30,000 soldiers were slaughtered, including Eli's sons, and the Ark of God, which was a symbol of God's presence, had been taken. God's warnings had come true. The next passage that we're going to see is possibly, because it gets more personal, is very, really shocking and dramatic, just like what Holly uh, read to us. And it gets us to ask some quite difficult questions. But there's, there's an amazing hope within it all. One of my favorite quotes from The Lord of the Rings is from Samwise Gamgee, I think one of my favorite characters within it all. And he's encouraging Frodo, and he says, as, obviously, Frodo is taking the ring to Mordor, he says, but in the end, it's only a passing thing this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it'll shine all the clearer. We see in these passages, even though they look bleak, 
And they look really, really bleak. Trust me, I've been reading this a long time. (laughs) And they look really bleak. God is still at work. And there is reason to hope. So we're going to go on that journey now. We're going to look at it in two parts. A lesson from Eli. And then secondly, a reason to hope. So, if we just have the, uh, the passage uh, on the back, it would be really helpful. If this was a Netflix series, right, I think this scene would make the perfect season one ender. If you've ever, obviously, binged on a Netflix series, right? This scene with Eli and Eli's daughter-in-law is so climactic, you can just imagine what's going on. You can imagine the music that would be behind it. This is how my mind thinks anyway. <laughs> Rightly or wrongly. Um, you can imagine just, just the, the sheer sense of disaster and the sheer sense of what's going to happen next. Where is this going? What's going to happen in season two? And I'll leave that to the person next week to tell you what's going to happen. <laughs> but before we get into this, it's really important to remember that God, God's warning is still ringing in Eli's ears. We can't detach that from God's warning to Eli. Just a reminder, in chapter 2, verse 31 to verse 33, God told Eli through a prophet, prophet, the time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will, see, will ever reach old age. Everyone of, uh, everyone of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sl- sight and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. Let's not forget, when we come to some uh, passages like that, that God is a holy God. He's not someone that we can just bring down to our level. And I think... I think I'll probably have to say that every time I've preached. Because there's some things in the Bible which seem so outlandish sometimes. We have to remember who God is. He's not like us. He's not like me. He's not like you. He is holy. And he is pure. And that's the demand he made from Eli. And that's what he said. This is constantly in Eli's mind. And he can't escape it. Then we get to in chapter 4, verse 12. The writer is very careful with the description in the passage. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So someone had to go to the city to tell Eli what had happened. His sons and his um, have been killed. 30,000 have been slaughtered with the Israelite army. The Ark of God had been captured. Eli is an old man at this time. He cannot see. You, you, if you can just imagine the scene in your mind... He, he has a chair next to the gate and he's just watching. Probably very anxious because he knows something's going on. Really anxious as to what's going on. My sons are in battle. The Ark of God um, is, um, is there. And, you know, I'm just waiting for news. This guy comes. Imagine being given that task, having to run to Eli and tell him that, is, that the Ark has gone and his sons were dead. How anxious and exhausted would you be giving Eli that news? Chapter, uh, verse 13, when he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared 
for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. The man firstly tells the people in the city the horrendous news. So you can imagine whatever place you're from, whatever city you're from, whatever town you're from, just imagine the whole town erupted with a cry. Just a wail, just so loud that everyone can hear. To be honest, I don't think we need to use our imagination too much when we look at the news and look at what's going on abroad. Just a whole city in complete distress. Husbands and sons, real people losing their lives. The man goes to tell Eli, who was sat at the gate watching, and watching in desperation. He knew this was coming, but he didn't want to admit it. He's anxious. I, I, I really, I've been looking at this for a while. I really feel for Eli in this moment. I really feel for, for him, and I really feel his anxiety in this moment. It's a desperately sad scene. Someone who's been serving God for 40 years and was chosen to be a priest leading Israel, God's chosen people, he knows he's wandered. He knows he's far from God. He knows he's made mistakes. He knows about his failures in the past. Have you ever been in a situation when you knew the news was going to be bad, but you just didn't want to admit it? Um, the whole country goes for this every couple of years with the England football team. Every, I was trying to think of something, just to lighten it a bit. Um, with the England football team, every, every couple of years, we, we go through this bizarre state of forgetting the heartache of what's happened before, and then we start going, it's coming home. What? I'm going to make a bold statement. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. England will not win the World Cup. Now, there's some people who are thinking, yeah, they will. Denial, right? <laughs> Eli is at this moment and is in denial. His heart is trembling. He's fearing the worst. You can feel the tension in his conversation. Eli heard the outcry in uh, verse 13. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? I think that's the denial there. Because you know, a person of 40, uh, who's been in charge for 40 years, knowing what's, what's gone on and what God has already said to them, I just read you that, that dramatic statement that the prophet has, has told uh, Eli, saying, this is what's going to happen to your family. When Eli says, what's happened, my son, I think he's full, he fully well knows what's happened. He just doesn't want to admit it to, admit to himself. And I completely get that. That's a human emotion. The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man, and he was heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. What a tragic, horrible situation. The writer doesn't want us to just bypass this. He wants, to look, wants us to look at it and ponder on it. What lessons can we learn from Eli? Well, there may be many, but the ones I've drawn out of this. We see that Eli has wandered. 
and there have been constant failures in his past. We also see that Eli still had faith in God. He knew what God said was right. And like I said at the start, we can't detach what he said, um, what God has said to him. Eli's faith was very messy. He isn't a poster boy for Christian faith, but neither are we. I don't know about you, but I can, I can identify with Eli a lot. I constantly fail, and I constantly wonder. And if I'm saying it, I know you are feeling the same as well. One of my favorite hymns we've just sung today, Come Thou Fount. And one of the most powerful verses for me is when it says, Prone to, Lord, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Don't we feel that sometimes? Just that we're just prone to wonder. We're just pr- prone to taking our eyes off Jesus. I feel this every day. By the constant tug of distraction and noise. And if it goes unchecked, unchecked, where will I be in 30 or 40 years if I just keep wandering and no one can hem me in? I need God to wake me up sometimes. To give me a shake. John Ortberg, a writer and a pastor, said some powerful things. He said about our um, kind of culture and, and distraction, he says, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It's quite dramatic. He went on to say, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of, acti- uh, instead of actually living them. My kids went to Yorkshire camp and I asked them, what did you learn? And they said, Jesus is, well, I didn't expect anything. I expected them to say nothing. And then they said, we learned that Jesus is the good shepherd and we're his sheep. I didn't get anything else out of him. But as I thought about it and I thought about Eli, I thought, absolutely. Jesus is our amazing good shepherd. In Luke 15, 4 to 7, Jesus said this, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, There'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not, repent, do not need to repent. Jesus is our good shepherd, and he rejoices when he finds us. That is such good news. I've never herded sheep. I'm not an animal man. The closest I think to herding sheep is playing Red Dead Redemption. However, I did have three toddlers at the same age, or similar age, should I say. That's the closest I can get to it. And when you have three, you're immediately outnumbered because you've got two and then one runs off. You're outnumbered straight away. Runs off in different directions. There was a time we went went to Wales and we went to a history museum. All the children went into an elevator and just disappeared. Didn't know where they were. Lost. I tell you the joy when we found them. It was really good to have them back when we, uh, when we looked for them in that, uh, in that place. See, God, see, Jesus is our good shepherd. 
And like little toddlers, we still have the tendency to wander off. And he keeps on bringing us back. He keeps on bringing us back. We're, you know, we're maybe heading for a busy road. He brings us back. He brings us back in different ways. Through the power of the Holy Spirit gently prompting us by a life-changing incident, by conversations and prayers with, uh, in community with our church brothers and sisters. He brings us back by prompting us to take time out to switch off from the world and just turn off our phones and open a Bible and just listen to him. He brings us back in a number of ways. There is no one here that can boast that they are here because of the hard work that they put in. We're only here because God is constantly working on us. I'm so glad that our identity is not in our past failures. Our constant failures are not what define us. Jesus is where we get our worth. That's really good news. And just secondly, really quickly, a reason to hope. As we continue to read through, we see the tragedy, tragedy unfold further. Although the passage again looks bleak, there is hope in it. It's, an, again, an incredibly sad scene with one of the most touching moments in the Bible. From chapter 19, his, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. She was dying. The woman attending her said, don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. The news gets to Eli's daughter-in-law, and she's overcome with grief, so much so that she goes into early labor. It's just heartbreaking. Her friends try to console her by telling her that she has a son. You can see that. We can see the fact that she's had a son, and her friends were encouraging her. It shouldn't just pass her by, but it does. As you may or may not know, having a son in that culture was a major, major thing. In fact, it was kind of like the pinnacle of uh, an Israelite's, uh, a female Israelite's existence, really, having a son. It meant security. Uh, as daughters went off to live with their husbands, sons stayed to um, um, look after the, the parents into their old age. Women in ancient Israel were desperate for sons. It's all they wanted. We can see the incident with Hannah, if you look back in chapter 1, I think it was, where Hannah is shunned, made fun of, because um, she doesn't have a child. That was the culture within that day. Eli's, friend, Eli's daughter-in-law's friends were saying, don't worry, this is all you've ever wanted. You're secure now. You've had a son. Don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not pay any attention. She didn't, she didn't care. She was completely and utterly without hope. It's a, such a sad scene. She was completely and utterly hopeless. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Like I said before, the ark of God represents the, uh, uh, the presence of God with his people. Eli's daughter-in-law knew a brutal reality that absolutely rings true today. It doesn't matter what you find your security in. It doesn't matter 
if you feel you've reached the goal in your life, it doesn't matter what we hold dear. It doesn't matter what we find our comfort in. Everything this side of heaven will fade away. Everything this side of heaven will fade away. And that is a brutally honest reality. And Eli's daughter knew that because God's presence wasn't wasn't with Israel, all her hope was lost. I said at the start that this book causes us to ask some difficult questions. So here's one. Have you ever thought to yourself, what is the end game for me? What is my reason for being? What do I want out of life? We go to work, we wake up, go to work, and we do the humdrum Monday to Friday. But what are we actually doing? Why do I exist? Try to reflect and think, what's the aim of my life? What do I want to succeed in? Do I want to earn the most money? Do I want to be comfortable and live a life of ease? Do I want my kids to be happy and secure? What is the end game for me? I googled top 10 things people want out of their life. And the top results were, with drum roll, this is just what came up. Top, top 10 things people want out of their life. What is it for you? For me, seeing as I'm asking the question, for me, it's not on there, it's comfort. When I asked myself that question, it was comfort. It was, I just want a life of ease. No fuss, financial, no, no stress, go to work easy, everything easy. <laughs> That's what I want. It's not going to happen, and we know that. What is it for you? Look around us. The world isn't getting easier. The brutal reality is, is that we're one phone call away from our lives being flipped, in, flipped into turmoil. And that is the reality of the situation. I am not... I'm not standing here saying something that we don't know. We may hope, go, oh, it'll be okay. Our lives are so fragile. The things that we have could be just gone in an instant. And we know that. You might be thinking, wow, this is heavy and uncomfortable and not pleasant, to be honest. So my aim here is to encourage you to not build your life on sand, but to build it on a rock of a solid foundation that will never give in. It's to give you something that overlooks and is better than anything that we can imagine. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the aim is to show you something that will flip things on its head and will give you a new hope that will not be shaken. What is the good news of the gospel? God loves us so much, even though we are all constantly making mistakes, even though we constantly wander, we get lost and distracted. He laid down his life so that we may truly live. Jesus is the presence, the glory of God in this world. In Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, it says this, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. At many times and in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And through him also made the universe. Just that statement alone is mind-boggling. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is the exact representation of the glory of God on this earth. 
In John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. God loves us so much that he gave us the only thing that's going to outlast all things. The only thing that isn't so fragile that at a blow it will be gone. The only thing that will keep us and sustain us, he gave us himself. He didn't give us the church, which is a gift. He gave us, ultimately, he gave us himself. He gave us all what I've just read there. He gave that to us. He gave himself, and we never, ever, ever, ever have to be hopeless. We never have to be a people who do not have hope. For that to happen, Jesus had to die on the cross He had to have his glory stripped away to the point where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On Good Friday, what we've just celebrated is that Jesus had to be separated from his father. You could say that the glory had departed from Jesus at that time. Why? So we can have eternal life. So we can live, truly live in this world He was buried and then he rose again, defeating once and for all Satan, sin and death. That is good news. That's amazing news. All we need to do is accept the gift for Jesus to take our failures and sin and for us to take his glory. Martin Luther, uh, a theologian who, um, just a very famous theologian, called it the Great Exchange. Just the, just the exchange of, of that. Everyone in this room and listening has something available to them that will never, ever fade. Never let us down. God loves us continually. Thinking back to that top 10 list I found on Google, all our longings and our deepest desires point to the person, the only one who can truly satisfy us. All the other things that we are looking at will not truly satisfy us. Deep down, we know that God's the only one who can truly give us freedom. He's the only one that can give us peace, joy, balance, confidence, and passion. He's the only one that enables us to take our eyes from the security and reliance on money. At the start, we spoke about where do we find our worth. Here's the invitation. To find your worth in someone who loves you, every messy part of it. To find your worth in the one who says your identity isn't in your failures. It's what I've done on the cross. To find your worth in the one who continually finds us when we wander. To find your worth in the one who we can have real hope that will never, ever fade. We never have to be in a situation where we feel hopeless. That is the gift of the gospel. That is something that we need to take away and rejoice in. Just to end on uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 40. says this, just to end this. It says, do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that if you truly hope in the Lord, you will renew your strength? 
They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint.